I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Matthew Hunter, in for Jay Edidin. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Or at least we're here to explain the X-Men most of the time. Uh, gentle listeners, if you have listened to the show before, you will notice a couple things are different. One, this is once again an episode of Hawk Talk, what we do during our off weeks, talking about non And uh, secondly, as you also noticed, Jay's not here this time. We actually have Matthew Hunter, our producer. You've heard his work so, so much on a, a truly mind-boggling number of episodes, and now you get to hear his voice. So yeah, Matt, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Miles. This is this is a lot of fun. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. Oh, me too. I'm excited. So as with past Hawk Talks, we um, often talk about the media we grew up on other than X-Men, because obviously X-Men is a thing, but they do make other media, I've, I, I'm told. And this time around, we're going to be talking about video games. Jay is a gamer to an extent, but not nearly the level of obsessive gamer that I have been in my life. And Matt, you have an even bigger gaming history than me. In fact, a significantly bigger and more central gaming history than me. Yeah, video games have always been an enormous part of my life. Being born in 1982, I like to say that I grew up with the art of video games. Uh, as I got older, games kind of grew with me, and uh, they've always been kind of that close friend right there uh, to hang out with, which has always been very nice. And you're not just a gamer as a hobby, but you actually did a video game podcast for a long time. That's true. Uh, back in the... Uh, I don't know, dark ages of uh, 2010, I started a video game podcast called A Jumps, B Shoots, where we talked about the uh, like the components of the things we loved about video games, the music, the art, the engagement, the storytelling, uh, how games are developed and how they hook you in. And uh, it was really just this enormous four year. Uh, oh, yeah, we, uh, we did it until about 2014. It was this four year love letter to video games that we wrote. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And along the way, I got to write about video games for various publications. I got to research the history of various games. Uh, if anybody hasn't, the uh, the old days of video games is just chock full of insane stories. Uh, how uh, Universal Pictures sued Nintendo because Donkey Kong looked too much like King Kong. Uh, and then the lawyer that bailed him out was named Kirby. And, uh, you know, rumor has it the video game character named Kirby is named after him. Uh, just insane amounts of stuff. So uh, I had a lot of fun uh, talking about video games on a weekly basis for four years. And uh, I'm really excited uh, to do it on Jane Miles Explain the X-Men. Hell yeah. Uh, we, we're going to try to cram so much, so much information and experience and love into like an hour here. We're going to see how it goes. Uh, I figure we could just talk very, very fast, but that would be hard to follow. So True. instead, we'll just sort of condense i guess so we had talked about maybe going through kind of our our video game histories because i was also born in 82 for that matter jay was also born in 82 we're a very 1982 born podcast here wow good year yeah apparently um and so yeah i suspect we have some overlaps but i also suspect uh we each have some things the other's not too familiar with so mm -hmm. do you want to just get started i guess i'll first ask how did you initially get into video games like what's your earliest video game memory oh wow um so my first video game memory was my cousin's Atari 2600 and playing adventure and uh, not understanding why I was so just absolutely enthralled and engaged with it, but I was. And uh, then after that, going to friends' houses, you know, seeing the NES 
And then um, I estimate maybe about 1987 is when I when I got my first uh, super. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Nintendo Entertainment System that I owned myself, and uh, you know from there it was all downhill for the most part. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, uh, my first system that I had was the Nintendo as well. It was a little bit later. I actually uh, was given it by my step-uncle. Um, mm. And so it was just a Nintendo and the random collection of games he had. And there were some real classics, like Ninja Gaiden 1 was there, a game that I, to this day, have still never beaten, but I will before I die, I promise. And then there were some other ones. Like, I was not into sports, but I had Tecmo Football, so I guess I played a lot of Tecmo Football because it was there. Yeah, I mean, sports games back then weren't, strictly sports games like you could probably describe punch out as a rhythm game uh, mm-hmm. partially more more so than a sports game but yeah nintendo did a great job in like crafting these like small experiences that were like highly enjoyable yeah it works really well i mean not always like i still remember the time that my friend sam who may very well listen to this episode at some point i still remember this sam um got me he bought the game crystalis uh and then he got a game called metal mech for free mm-hmm. and he kept crystalis and gave me metal mech crystalis was a very good game metal mech was not but at the yeah. same time if you have a game and if you're if your only source of what you're playing is just like what you already have you're gonna play the hell out of it whether it's good or bad you're gonna come to kind of love it in this weird twisted stockholmy way it's true i actually uh i i have a list of games uh from the 90s which is uh Uh, today's topic we're going to be talking about games from the 90s and uh as i was like doing research for this i realized that there were a number of games that i just looked at and went should i put this on here well geez i played it for like an entire year but it wasn't very good why did i do that oh that's right because i bought it with my own money (laughs) and i needed to justify the experience to myself oh that wasn't very kind (laughs) <laughs> that makes so much sense though like you're you're motivated to just prove to yourself no i made a good decision yeah yeah i i, I spent money on it there's no way this could be a bad decision I don't, <laughs> I don't waste my own money like that who would do a silly thing like that yeah so yeah if we're talking about the 90s i guess let's start in around 1990 what were you playing around then that makes sense to me so like most people, I was playing games like Mega Man 3, uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Chrysalis was a huge game, like uh, just a game that like really drew me in and was, uh, aside from Dragon Warrior, one of my first kind of larger world, actually Dragon Warrior and The Legend of Zelda 2, I think were my very first, but Chrysalis was definitely up there in my first big war- expansive world games that you could explore. You had lots to do. It was genuinely fun for me. Uh, and then uh, one of the lesser known games that I actually fell head over heels in love with was this uh, Mega Man clo- clone called Power Blade. Power Blade. I have never heard of that. Yeah. You played this uh, ripply muscular man, kind of, uh, you know, Stallone Schwarzenegger type that threw a gigantic boomerang. And it was great. It was just so good. I, I love that. I, I love the fact that so many old games, the concept was just, I don't fucking know. Like, let's just, let's, let's mad libs a video game concept and then yep. we'll just make it and the kids will play it. Like yep. they didn't necessarily make any sense. That's part of what made them great. Oh, absolutely. And then, and then you had like the insane boss designs and like you threw boomerangs at robots. They exploded. You moved to the next level. Life was simpler back then. <laughs> right. Although, man, I kind of want to go back to Crystalis just because I feel like this is a Please. game people need to know about. And so few people do. Cause like, you know, you had your Zelda, which was very fantasy, your dragon quest slash warrior, which is very fantasy. 
Crystalis was like this weird post-apocalyptic setting, mm-hmm. and it was very mysterious what was actually going on. And there were these crystals and elemental swords, and like the world had been overrun by bugs. It was like I don't know. There were, there were elements of uh, almost of Nashka Valley of the Wind in there in the feel of it. Yeah, and uh, I, I forget. I'm I'm I'm, I'm frantically uh, trying to look this up, but it was it was in a strangely like near future. I mm-hmm. think it was set in. Um, yeah, here we go. Uh, the Great War, uh, the nuclear war rained down in the year 1997, the apocalyptic year of 1997. And huh. uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it was it was it was really cool. It was it 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 had this like kind of like sci fi presentation to it, but it had a very fantasy feel and. Uh, not a lot of games were able to pull that off really, really well. But, you know, Chrysalis as like kind of this like uh, it, it kind of straddled your traditional role playing game with your kind of like action uh, action RPG, uh, a, a lot like something like The Legend of Zelda did, but a little bit more structured. It was fun and it looked good. It was it was it was kind of I remember pink being a very kind of like prominent color in that. Yeah, this sort of neon fuchsia pink kind of color was yeah. just all over the place. It felt very yeah. radioactive, which I guess makes sense. Hey, you know, like, absolutely. Yeah, it kind of serves the story with the kind of visual storytelling at that point. But definitely a fun game. Definitely one that uh, I, has been on my list to revisit, but just haven't yet. And I'm also a little bit nervous. I'm not always too confident that games will hold up as I remember them. Uh, so I'm a little hesitant. Oh, totally. I um just went back and replayed Cool Spot, the Seven Up mascot video game for the Super Nintendo, which I remembered loving as a kid. It was one of my favorite games. Same. It doesn't hold up as well as I was hoping. At least it didn't for me. I don't believe you. My rosy glasses will remain on. <laughs> That's entirely legit. Uh, <laughs> oh, it occurs to me we forgot a m- one of the most important parts of Hawk Talk which we would normally go back and edit in earlier in the episode, but that's the important part. Hawk Talk, when we do it, every fourth week is unedited. We just hit record, we talk, we hit stop, and we post the damn thing. So not only is this not representative of what the show is normally about, but it's not representative of the ninja-like precision that our episodes are normally edited with. So it's actually kind of ironic that our producer is coming onto an episode with no editing. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I'm being very careful. I'm uh, watching my plosives. I'm uh, pacing myself a little bit more, but I don't know. I think we're doing an okay job so far. So far, so good. We'll we'll see how the rest goes. (laughs) Around 1996, it's all going to fall apart. Oh, man. The dark, dark days. That's almost where we are (laughs) in the podcast. Crap. It's true. (laughs) Anyway, um, so as the 90s continued, uh, as we finally got, you know, past the glory that was was Chrysalis, what else was going on in Matt Video Game Land? Oh, man. So I definitely stuck with the NES in the early 90s. And anybody who had a video game habit in the 90s knows that this was an enormously hit or miss time. Tons of NES games were being released that were just absolute garbage. And then there were some that were great and nobody played and a few of those uh from 1991 are rockin cats which is this cartoony uh cat that has a fist on a uh like an extendo thing and uses that to uh grab onto surfaces and kind of like move around levels uh if you ever played bionic commando it had kind of a similar but less less 
you know, well-controlled mechanic uh, to that. Uh, so yeah, Rockin' Cats was great. Uh, Shatterhand, uh, which was a big muscly dude who could uh, punch in the air and create things in front of him that he used to destroy robots. It's a theme. It's an early 90s theme. Don't think about it too much. It'll be fine. We're going to get through this. Uh, <laughs> I mean, honestly, uh, it's not that different from early 90s X-Men. So, like, we're, we're very much on theme in that regard. Yeah, I mean, the early 90s had a flavor. You know, we were just recovering from the 80s. Uh, there was uh, the game G.I. Joe, which uh, was one of the surprisingly good property titles. Uh, and then I think the one that everybody can uh, have a collective groan to, uh, I really liked Battletoads, like, a lot. Battletoads... There was so much good about Battletoads, and then there was that fucking, like, hover cycle level thing. Yep. Yeah, it just kind of ruined the game for everybody. But if you were able to get through it, there was a lot of other really cool stuff in that game. And then you had another hover bike level to ruin the, you know, second or the third third of the game. So so many games did that. Like I, the biggest example I can think of is the original Ninja Turtles game for the NES. Mm, like mm-hmm. there were there was a bunch of cool stuff. But the second level was that timed underwater level where yep. you tried not to electrocute yourself or suffocate. And like almost nobody that I knew could get past it. And so the rest of the game was just this mystery. I was uh, kind of a freakishly talented kid at video games, and I was able to get through. I, I was actually the kid that friends called over to their house to get through that part of the game for them. And then <laughs> I'd be like, OK, see ya. You know, I'm going to go ride my bike home now. And so they could play the rest of the game. Uh, the big trick was, you know, very precise controls up until the very last one. And then you just plow through the electric seaweed and just get rocked, uh, to get that last bomb. That's the trick. So there you go. You're welcome audience. Maybe now is the time. Maybe after we record this, I'll go beat Ninja Turtles and then I'll go continue to fail to beat the first Ninja guy done. Yeah, that sounds about, yeah. Okay. I, I believe in you. I think you can do that. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Um, 1991 was also the first year my family got uh, a computer that was, um, that, that could reasonably run games on. I never owned a Commodore. I never owned an Amiga. I never owned an Atari, uh, but we were able to get, I think it was a 386 and I played uh, Wolfenstein and lemmings on that. And man, let me tell you, lemmings was an experience for me. It was the most infuriating thing I ever had the opportunity to experience, but it was also the most engaging. And I played the hell out of that game. Lemmings was great. Yeah. Uh, I never actually had it. I didn't have a computer that could play video games until about 1995. Um, Mm -hmm. We had an old IBM XT. It was what was referred to as a luggable, which meant that it was technically portable, but have fun with that. It just had this tiny little black and amber one color screen. It had two five and a quarter floppy drives. And I was using this until 1995. So there were a couple games for it, but nothing like that. So games like Lemmings, I played at school because Lemmings counted as educational i guess and fuck, I, I, I wasn't gonna complain yeah seriously I, school was kind of like the, the 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 great gaming space for a lot of people that couldn't necessarily have games at home so there was like uh the uh oh what was that game it was like the ultimate machine or the crazy machine the incredible machine the incredible machine was that it was it, it was like the rube Gold, goldberg device game yes yeah yes oh my god thank you for knowing this i would have driven myself nuts i love that game jay it's and i so both good. love that game actually yeah yeah it's it's really amazing of course you know oregon trail but that came before the 90s 
yeah, I mean, school uh, was definitely like it, it. It it at least had a hand in uh, increasing a kind of like connection to video games. I think at least for me, it did. Yeah, absolutely. Same. I mean, from Lemmings to Incredible Machine to uh, Mist. To I mean, that's you know mm-hmm. later than we're talking about right now. But sure, that was the only place I played Mist for years and years and years. I never knew what the hell I was supposed to be doing, but it blew my mind anyway. Yeah, most of us didn't. Yeah, it, it just wasn't for us to know at the time. <laughs> we had to let uh, the mystery be-, be. Yeah, yeah, not before Game Facts, at least. Uh, so yeah, so in 1991, I had a, a PC, and then uh, Christmas of 1991, Matt got a Super Nintendo, and oh boy, was that great! Still, my favorite console of all time. I love it yeah. so much. Yeah, big same. Uh, Super Mario World was just a revelation for me. I adored the first Mario. I liked the second Mario loved the third Mario and super Mario world was just everything that I loved about all of those games all wrapped up in this really fun, cute, fun to play package. It was just, it was so good. And the technology there, like I specifically remember one of the things that they were advertising in the, now you're playing with superpower commercials yeah. <laughs> uh, was that you would like climb along those chain link fences. And there mm-hmm. were certain panels where if you punched them, you would flip around and it wouldn't just be like, Oh, now Mario's fa- Mario is facing the other way. You would see like so many frames of animation as he turned. It just felt so real and so 3d and so, yeah. so fluid. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was comparable to the things that we were like watching on TV, but now you were controlling it. It was this, it was, it was this fun interactive cartoon that you were able to like really engage with. And uh, yeah, it, 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 it was able to uh, scale images. It was able to uh, display transparency. The super Nintendo did a whole lot of things that like, you know, people remember the blast processing from the Sega Genesis, but I mean, you know, really talking technically the super Nintendo did a lot more impressive things than the Sega Genesis did. I mean, I was always a Nintendo kid. And part of that, again, was like you were saying earlier, you tend to justify the decisions you've made as the right one. And Mm -hmm. I convinced my family to buy me a Super Nintendo. And there was no way I could also get a Genesis. That was never going to happen. And so I was Team Nintendo. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I was too, and you, and 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 listeners will find that uh, as 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 we go through the list that uh, I was one hundred percent a Nintendo kid for sure. Uh, but uh, I always I always found like uh, much later in life when I can actually think about th- these things critically, just how ironic the whole like uh, n- uh, com- Sega Genesis commercial was, where the Nintendo vehicle was this like jalopy that just like and then you know speeding by it was the Sega Genesis vehicle at like you know Mach one and you know just like trying to tell us that like you know oh, the Super Nintendo's you know a cute kids toy, but the Sega Genesis is the one that's gonna blow your mind and. <laughs> It made sense to us then. You know, they they knew how to market to the specific type of dumb kids we all were. Oh, man, did they ever? Uh, But Nintendo won me out uh, ultimately because uh, just the the games were so freaking good. Oh, yeah. And for me also, and I'm actually curious uh, your take on this because you do Mm chiptune like as as a musician. For me, the music was a lot of that. The Super Nintendo Mm -hmm. synthesizer had this appealing liquid multi-layered sound to it that i loved and the sega genesis synthesizer i wasn't against it it had this wonderful mm-hmm. crunch to it as well yep. but for me the super nintendo just felt so so joyous and so much of that was the music 
you are correct. I do make chiptune, which means I do know quite a lot about uh, the ins and outs of how the sound worked in those systems. And if I can get slightly technical for just a second, uh, the Sega Genesis used an actual uh, FM synthesis synthesizer uh, made by Yamaha, installed in the Sega Genesis, but it specialized in very sharp, very harsh, tinny sounds. So electric guitars and big bells sounded great on it, but, you know, kind of very little else. The Super Nintendo worked with a sampler uh, that I believe Sony uh, developed. And because it was a sampler, it could replay just about any sound it wanted. So you had kind of full voice effects. You had uh, Final Fantasy being able or uh, Final Fantasy three being able to have the big orchestrated um uh, opera scene mm. you had uh you know big you know like act razor which i have on my list i'll talk about a little later you know like these enormously you know kind of bombastic you know uh brass and you know woodwinds kind of uh instrumentation uh so yeah i think it was just more flexible it had more ability to fit the style of game that was actually being developed uh which you know i i really think kind of implanted into a lot of our brains not to say that, yeah, again, not to say that Sega Genesis didn't have any good music, but the Super Nintendo was just so, yeah, I mean, fluid and, you know, like uh, bombastic. Mm-hmm, totally. The game that always exemplified that for me um, was, I think we're almost coming up to, uh, was Final Fantasy II or in Japan, Final Fantasy IV, just mm-hmm. in terms of the 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 word I always come back to is the liquid quality of the sound effects even more than yeah. the music. Yeah, you had like uh, the drips of water that sounded like they were in the distance. And uh, yeah, it, it did a really, really great job with that, especially with uh, sound designer and uh, uh, songwriter um, Nubo Uematsu, who understood how to program uh, for that chip just exquisitely well. Uh, his, his, his talents were incredible. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I I still listen to his soundtracks. In fact, I was listening to one as I was making dinner earlier today. Like, they totally nice. hold up. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely do. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, like, if you wanted to move on to 1992, this was Matt's era of AOL and Prodigy and finally, like, exploring what the PC can do as just like this, like, multimedia monster you know, in 1992, relatively speaking, <laughs> of course. Um, but, you know, I had uh, Carmen Sandiego's Deluxe Edition, which I was far, far too uneducated to really do anything in that game. Uh, there was a, a helicopter game called Kamachi uh, Maximum Overkill, which was an enormously cool game. And, uh, you know, really, I just started like dipping my toes into like, you know, Oh, what's gaming on a PC like? Uh, and it was a lot of fun. I really, I really enjoyed myself. But really, the star of the show for Matt, and I'm sure it was the same for you, Miles, was the Super Nintendo. Oh, absolutely. No, 92, I think, might have been when I first got that Super Nintendo. Because mm-hmm. I do remember that Final Fantasy II was the first game I got, aside from you know Mario World that was packed in. And it was... Mm-hmm. there was nothing like it. I'd never experienced anything that incredible in terms of just plot, in terms of presentation, in terms of immersion. Like I got so into that game that on long road trips, I would like run dungeons and dragons for my little brother. But all I was doing was running him through the plot of final fantasy (laughs) four. I'm not sure if he caught on to that or not, uh, but I was the older brother. So he just sort of had to deal with it, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the story was just, 
I mean, this was in the early days of localization, so it wasn't the clearest exactly what was going on, but it did have the phrase, uh, you bardy or you spoony bard, which, uh, when I read it as a kid, uh, confused me. And now as an adult delights me, I really appreciated that when they retranslated the game many, many years later, they kept you spoony bard. They have to, I mean, it's just like all of us read that and went, what (laughs) and it just it just stuck it just stuck for being so weird but uh yeah i mean final fantasy 2 was definitely the game that kind of introduced me to um i don't know how would you like maybe tragedy in games maybe that like characters can sacrifice themselves and then not be in the game anymore and that was surprising and shocking to me because a lot of the previous story driven games was centered around one character. And of course that character made it all the way to the end. All of a sudden you have this game with multiple people having multiple roles that uh, you counted on in certain scenarios. And now without them, I hate to put it like this because it sounds so cheesy, but you kind of lost a friend on this journey that you were taking. Absolutely. Well, and I think you you hit exactly on why games like Final Fantasy 2 slash 4, they had different numbers in America and Japan at the time. It was very confusing. Um, We're in the 90s right now. We can call it 2. Okay, yeah. So it was 2 to us. But, Mm -hmm. um, But yeah, I mean, these were characters who were not just like, oh, you know, that's the character that shoots the gun versus that's the character that throws the grenades. It's like, no that's the character who was the prince of the fire kingdom and was in love with a woman who tragically died when the empire attacked. And now he's drowning in depression, but he's also being hunted by the grandfather or father, I forget which of that woman. uh, And he has to like justify his actions to her. And it's like, whoa, this is so much more complex than anything I've ever seen in a video game. Yeah. They spent a lot of time building up these characters to make sure that, uh, not only did you understand uh, like their backstory, but a lot of the times their backstory was woven into the special abilities that they had, like uh, uh, the twins, uh, Palm and Palm, I think something like that. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but uh, one was a white mage and one was a black mage because they played off of each other. They were very close. And then when they both casted, uh, uh, oh, they uh, uh, petrify on themselves to turn them to stone to keep the walls from closing in mm-hmm. and killing the whole party. They just stayed like that the rest of the game until I, I think it was the very end. They kind of rolled, you know, they they they, they pulled an enormous X Men move and just rolled back all the deaths at the end <laughs> of the game. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, yeah, it like it it really it really lent gravity to moments like that, and it was the first time like gravity introduced itself into my games mm-hmm. at all, which was exciting and heartbreaking but exciting oh yeah just that level of of emotional intensity i think between that and x-men i learned to be a kid that just relished tragedy in fiction like i just wanted Mm -hmm. to feel things for media and final fantasy was so good at that x-men obviously also wonderful at that yeah yeah, definitely. Um, some some other uh, games from 1992. I, you know, I'm realizing how big of a year 1992 was for me. Uh, but like Link to the Past mm-hmm. was released, which I, I think to this day, um, you know, please hold your rotten tomatoes. It's probably my favorite Legend of Zelda game. That's a totally legit choice. Like, it's not my yeah. favorite, but I completely get why it's the favorite of so many people. It's it's stellar. I think Breath of the Wild may have 
crested it, but uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't know, like the memories I have with that game are just so like deeply in, emotionally instilled uh, in, in me. Uh, but like, that's the year I got my super scope, <laughs> uh, which uh, was just such an amazing, like, you mean I get a bazooka? I don't need to use a gun anymore. I get a bazooka. That feeling for a kid is incredible. And that's the most 90s thing I can think of. It's like, oh, there was this little oh, pistol yeah. zapper for the NES, but now we're in the 90s. Now it's time for a goddamn gray and purple plastic bazooka that you can point at your television i just wanted to be in that boardroom just like okay everybody we release the zapper with the nes we can't just release another gun what do we release in its place well how about we release uh, a briefcase that holds the codes to a nuclear weapon no 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 no. that's too much we need to leave room to grow (laughs) how about a bazooka that's it we got it make it happen and make, make it, it compatible with like almost no games yeah and then like not compatible with any television that isn't a tube television so <laughs> but it was uh, still cool. right yeah i i still have mine <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you could work it into a halloween costume or something oh you're so right uh i don't know maybe i'll dress up as uh paul rudd in uh in a nintendo commercial uh which he was totally in a nintendo commercial <laughs> and it's delightful if only not just for paul rudd and he doesn't even look that much older than uh, now than he oh, did then. Why does he have that? It freaks me out so much because I look at him and he looks like he did in Clueless. Mm-hmm. And then I look at me and I don't look anything like I did when I watched Clueless. So. <laughs> you know, I think he's just uh, it's like a Dorian Gray situation. He's got this oh. hideous, aged, like grizzled, gnarled picture of himself somewhere in a closet next to a super scope. But you know what? We as a society will protect that with our lives because Paul Rudd is so delightful. He's a treasure. <laughs> we want him in our lives forever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, 92 was the year of uh, Link to the Past, the Super Scope, uh, Street Fighter 2, which just really just blew my mind with just how fantastically cool this fighting game was uh, uh, Turtles in Time. Mm. Like, you know, with 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 Street Fighter 2 and Turtles in Time you felt like you had an arcade in your, in your room and that you could play these games for free. And it was just, it was so exciting. Yeah. And like the graphics weren't quite as good as the arcade, but it captured the feel so well. Mm-hmm. And you weren't having to ask your parents for rolls of quarters that you would just funnel endlessly into them. Um, and with turtles in time, I specifically remember there were like a couple of levels in the super Nintendo version that weren't in the arcade. And so you felt like you were getting away with something. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, oh wow, this is special. I have something in my room that no that isn't doesn't exist anywhere else except for other rooms that had turtles in time. But regardless, um, uh, and then uh, Mario Paint was released in 1992, and uh, I, I don't know if you have uh, extensive uh, experience with Mario Paint, but I remember making animation, making music, uh, just doing the dumbest stuff imaginable, and it was so much fun it seemed awesome yeah i only ever rented it and they were kind enough to rent you the mouse with the game like they didn't just leave you mm. stranded but i never really had time to uh to dig into it very much i was also just i've never really been a very artistic person in terms of like musical or visual artistic creativity so i think for me it was more of like a cool diversion it's awesome that the mm-hmm. system can do this thing but i wasn't personally into creating stuff in it very much sure but I mean, it also had the uh, game where you could swat flies with that fly swatter. Yes, so it you did. always had that. So satisfying. <laughs> and then you had that weird, like, robot bug at, like, uh, I guess it was a boss of some kind. Uh, again, robots existed in the 90s. Just don't think about we, it too much. We had to destroy them all, is the relevant part. <laughs> it's true. 
and then uh, two games that I think don't get enough, uh, don't get talked about enough is uh, Act Razor, uh, which I think was the same team that would eventually do uh, Soul Blazer, Illusion of Gaia, and Terra Enigma. Hell yeah, it was. And uh, Ewan Squadron, which was this awesome shooter that had like RPG elements to it. Uh, it was based on a, a Japanese uh, uh, um, cartoon uh, or an anime, if you will. And uh, it was just obnoxiously fun. You had a health bar in, 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 in a shooter, which just never really happened. So that was really nice for those of us who weren't good enough at shooters to actually like live a few more levels. But <laughs> I sympathize uh, entirely. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, 1992 was just such a fun year for video games. And I remember playing those games uh, for years after that as well. Um, And then like, you know, just renting random games, trying them out. If, you know, I rented them more than three times, my parents would write it on a list for Christmas. (laughs) They were great. They were great about it. I was highly privileged in being able to play so many video games. My parents were just like, you want what? All right, fine. We don't like them, but we we get it. Fine. That is damn handy. Yeah, yeah. For me, I had like two a year and I just played the living crap out of them. Yeah, I think I got maybe uh, like five or six a year. Mm-hmm. I got three for Christmas and then like uh, my parents did this thing where they combined my birthday and Christmas because they're only 10 days away. Mm-hmm. That was a little bit of a bummer. But, uh, you know, then I got like kind of like your random video games throughout the year. But, uh, uh, you know, I think I think I made good decisions when uh picking up those video games very rarely did i buy one that was terrible and had to play uh out of spite for myself no no metal mech in the bunch no uh, i mean not for i think maybe at least a few years when i could uh ride my bike to the um babbages myself and plop down my own money and you know just kind of go nuts with whatever cover looked cool Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the uh blockbuster video technique yeah absolutely absolutely um so let's move on to 1993 that's a big year 19- for me too that was when i started yeah. really getting into gaming well uh, uh what did you get into what was what did your 1993 look like so for me 93 was uh was secret of mana that was one of the really big ones right there it was mm-hmm. the first video game i played by at the time squaresoft they were called not that was, that was before the square annex days that mm-hmm. wasn't final fantasy and um so getting a chance to have a multiplayer like fantasy rpg by squaresoft was amazing like my friends yeah. and i we had a group a tight group of three friends we never got a hold of the three-player adapter the multi-tap for the super nintendo so we would just take mm. turns playing two-player but even that mm. was so cool and i tell you that game still holds up like my fiance and i played it not that long ago we played the um the one with redone graphics but it's the exact same game aside from that yeah, totally holds up. It really does. The translation was incomprehensible. And from what I understand, that wasn't entirely the fault of the translator. It was that based on the way like characters are stored in Japanese coding versus US coding, um, they had to cut the dialogue down to like a quarter of what it was or something. So yep. I feel like it's probably more coherent than it could have been. But still, I didn't know what any of the characters were doing or why. That was kind of a, uh, a common problem for... Uh... Uh, Squaresoft at the time because uh, Final Fantasy 2 unfortunately had the same problem with uh, the Japanese uh, characters being so much more economical in space mm-hmm. uh, than uh, our our bloated English language but you know 
regardless, it was still fun and it was so unique. It was so different. It, 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 it gave you the opportunity to have like these to, to, to avoid battles. But then if you wanted to jump into battle, you didn't get transported to this brand new screen. It just happened right there. Mm-hmm. And you had to like position yourself intelligently in order to make the best decisions in battle. It was great. Oh, and that Hiroki Kakuta soundtrack, it, uh, talking about amazing Super Nintendo soundtracks, it was, it was, I remember it being so complex that if there was too much going on on the screen, like bits of the soundtrack would drop out because normally the soundtrack was just using so much of the, the guts of the Super Nintendo. It's true. Oh, freaking great. Yeah. But the whole, the whole experience just, uh, came together so beautifully it was just such a cool game uh i unfortunately never owned it i was the player too Mm -hmm. in that game but i went to my friend's house and we had our we had our own save file and uh we actually over the course of several months uh played through the whole game uh whenever i stopped by his place so uh, i definitely had an opportunity to experience it uh but just never on my own which uh again i downloaded the uh version for the switch and uh played through that Mm -hmm. and uh actually it was the first time i ever played through that on my own without a second player oh man that must have been a very different experience it was a very very different experience but it was also like really like engaging because i got to like really like experience all the different characters and how they interacted with the 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 battle segments Mm -hmm. um the biggest game for me in 1993 was some of you may have heard of this game a little game called doom (laughs) And I just could not wrap my head around how cool doom was. I mean, I was 11 years old. I was a boy. And so just completely marketed toward my sensibilities. Uh, I, you know, uh, the, the, the game just oozed like demon killing testosterone. And it had this like amazing metal MIDI soundtrack to it. And it was just, it was, it was like obscene with just like how like grotesque it tried being with its limited palette of colors. And I loved it. I loved every second of it. I wanted just like, I I finished the game multiple times and just wanted more of it. And luckily they just kept releasing doom expansions and doom levels and then doom 2 eventually came out which we'll talk about later because i actually have a special story about doom 2 and uh yeah doom just really got me on the road to the world of first person shooters actually it just kind of started the world of first first person shooters ultimately but yeah doom was just an enormous moment for me um and on top of that it being shareware like just having a free copy of it that you could pick up from a friend or your local computer store had the uh little discettes that you could grab and pop in your uh in your a drive and wait for it to install and then you got the first chapter of doom all installed and uh it was just great it was just so wonderful oh man yeah i'd forgotten about shareware there was there were so many games that that did that that just gave you like a demo essentially or sometimes just the full version and they hoped you would pay for it and i mean mm-hmm. we never did but like you you yeah. could i mean i i did i was able to convince my parents to buy me a money order from our local grocery store and if uh, if there are any chicagoans in the audience which there probably are uh we went to our local jewel osco that uh, could issue us a money order. I then mailed the money order to the address that was uh, pulled up uh, in the setup screen. 
and uh then they sent they mailed me the uh i think i think it was one disc for doom and it was three or four discs for doom 2 and that's how that's how it worked and i wished i I wish i still had them i really really wish that but they disappeared yeah i i suspect they were long ago magnetized into oblivion regardless but but you never know oh absolutely yeah i i mean uh, you know I just assume just the uh, the magnetic radiation of Earth uh, is slowly decaying all diskettes on Earth. So I, I blame Magneto, honestly. You know, it's real easy to blame Magneto for stuff like this. So let's just land on that. Uh, but yeah, so 1993 was completely overshadowed by Doom. Uh, I played a lot of Star Fox. Mm-hmm. I played Aladdin for the Super Nintendo. It was really good. Which, uh, it was an amazing game. Disney had this habit of releasing really amazing property games the uh, the aforementioned chippendale rescue rangers uh tailspin darkwing duck tails uh duck tails thank you um and aladdin uh later on lion king was probably one of the weaker ones but still really good mm-hmm. you know like uh, disney really genuinely cared about their game studio which i don't know why but thank you. It worked out great. Yeah. I mean, the, the new DuckTales cartoon, I haven't seen it, but I've heard it even uses like that awesome moon level music from the DuckTales video game from back in the day. Like the, oh, such wow. a long tail to that legacy, a long duck tail, I guess. Hey, hey. there you go. <laughs> Man, if we're talking 93, I got I to gotta talk about Mega Man X. Um, I, I never got into the oh, sure. original Mega Man just because I never had it. But Mega Man X, it was the first non-RPG that I bought with my own money. I was so oh, wow. nervous about whether I'd made the wrong decision, but it was, there were robots. Cause you know, you, you blow up robots. Mm-hmm. It's what you do. Yeah, it's the nineties. Yes. But these were robots that had feelings and many of their feelings were exemplified by like the synthesizery electric guitar soundtrack. I'm like, there's tragedy and there are soaring electric guitars. Young miles, young miles said to young miles. <laughs> I think this is what the inside of our heart looks like. And it's just, it, I think it holds up. I'm totally biased, but mm-hmm. there's just this, this level of radicalness, of ratitude yeah. that was in Mega Man X that is really hard to match. And like, it wasn't that ironic, sarcastic 90s style of radicalness. Like, it was really earnest. It was like, no, no, we have a lot of feelings about our robot friends that are dying, and we're going to like fight a robot armadillo to get the ability to show you how intense those feelings are. I mean, some stories can only be told through the abilities of a robot armadillo. Exactly. And I'm I'm really happy Mega Man X made that narrative decision. Yeah, nobody had been able to um, to take care of that Jack London archetype until then. There's, you know, man versus nature, man versus himself, <laughs> robot versus armadillo. Like, it, it's one of the basics. And this was the first time it was really ever done justice. A tale as old as time. Uh, yeah, agreed. hundred percent agreed. I didn't play Mega Man X as a kid. So uh, the excitement, like the nostalgic excitement isn't there. I played it later in life and still absolutely loved it and you don't always get that experience when you kind of pick up an older game and you just get it you 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 play it and you're just like ah okay i see exactly what everybody loved about this mm-hmm. game and Mega Man x probably one of the absolute best reboots of a property in video game history because you know people don't usually think about it as a reboot because it's as much of a classic as the original Mega Man is but they completely redid everything about Mega Man for that game and they 
tossed away a lot of the aesthetics and just went, no, you know what? It's a new system. Uh, they did release Mega Man 7 for the Super Nintendo, but Mega Man X was the one that they just carried on that legacy with. And it was just such a good decision because a lot of the X games la- uh, later on were of uh, just as high quality. And uh, Mega Man holds a really, really special place in my heart. Uh, I actually uh, had a sp- speed run time uh that was i think i was in the top 20 in the world wow uh yeah back in 2003 2004 i was able to beat mega man uh two in uh, i think it was like 43 minutes impressive yeah i can't anymore but uh so uh, mega man has a really special place in my heart and i i was just so happy when i uh force myself to play Mega Man X uh, after years of just like, no, it's not as good as the originals. My name's Matt. I know better. <laughs> uh, no, it's not true. Matt didn't know better. <laughs> um, but yeah, Mega Man X is definitely, definitely, definitely uh, like just one of the standout games of the Super Nintendo era. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh man. And then 94 has one of my very, very favorites of that whole era. We talked about final fantasy two, which is to say four, Final Fantasy 3, mm-hmm. which is to say 6. I still remember the way the manual smelled. I went with my mother mm-hmm. to the mall, to Sarasota Square Mall. Um, she had some shopping to do and I don't know, Sears or something. I didn't remember because I had just picked up Final Fantasy 3 slash 6 using all of my savings because games were surprisingly <laughs> expensive back then. And I was reading... It was the cartridges. Yeah. yeah it was, yeah. Like, they were, like uh, Chrono Trigger was like $80. Mm-hmm. I think this one was like kind of a similar pre- similar premium because of just the construction of the cartridge. And these were $1994 too. So, yeah. I was like, so, I think like a, uh, $1,200, $1,300 in today's money. I mean, money. it, was, it yeah. was a lot of mowed lawns. I know that much. For uh, sure. But yeah, I was, I was reading through the instruction manual, like, oh, there are all these new characters. They're all different than the last one. And my mother was gently guiding me away from like walking into clothing racks <laughs> and stuff. And I took it home and I plugged it in and there's like a little intro scene. And then it goes to the opening credits. And this, this like, by today's standards, very dated, but at the time, amazing uh, video of these three mechs, like these three bipedal mechs that these three characters were in walking through this snowstorm as the credits Mm -hmm. fade in and out and there's just this slow haunting music and i wouldn't have admitted it then i'll admit it now i cried i this was just the opening credits and i was just so overwhelmed with emotion and the game fucking held up it really did and it was just so cinematic it it did cinematic better than a lot of movies that tried that same just gut feeling right from the get-go uh it 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 told a lot of the story from those first seconds and uh i'm I'm right there with you like i was i was completely overwhelmed uh the part that made me cry was when i left shadow on the island that was breaking apart i did that too yeah so listeners if we all if you're not familiar like there's a character that goes with you and he goes to hold off some bad guys and then you have a five minute countdown i think five minutes um to get off this island that's going to collapse and so mm-hmm. when you get to the end you're like shit i gotta go but if you instead wait until the last five seconds, this guy who is holding off the bad guys for you shows up and he's like, all right, I'm ready. Let's go. And so if you save him, he's a character in the second half of the game. If you don't, mm-hmm. nope, he's, he's just gone. He's just gone. And he was one of my absolute favorite characters. He had this amazing dog named Intercept. Uh, and yeah, like when they started talking about like, where's Shadow? It's like, he didn't make it. I just think to myself, he didn't make it. Oh no. <laughs> Just, yeah. Um, but uh, probably, probably one of the most uh, 
uh, one of the things I think of first when I think of Final Fantasy three is the art of uh, uh, Yoshitaka Amano. Just those weird flowing drawings that were just like a lot of blues and purples that became this like amazing staple in future Final Fantasy games. And uh, like, you know, like talking about the manual, just reading through it. Uh, he had these amazing drawings of all the characters and then like a short blurb about their background. And that manual was just a novel. It was just so thick and so heavy. Uh, it, it, it just added, I mean, you know, so to speak, added weight to the game. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, just the, the, the art was so interesting and so unlike any, any other art I've ever seen for another video game with just how, stylized it was i i think that was an amazing decision uh made on the part of uh squaresoft at the time yeah one of my so i have to brag a little here so i work for dark horse comics that's my day job and mm -hmm. um dark horse has published a number of amano's works uh, art books mm -hmm. and some narrative books that he's done as well he came to the offices a couple of years ago and he very generously offered to sign things if, if people who worked at dark horse wanted him to sign things literally the entire company lined up like that line filled the whole editorial department going all the way around the loop of that area. Every, every single person in the company was there. And a lot of those people had like specific special things they brought. And I brought that manual and he signed that manual. He, he drew a little sketch and signed what I assume was his name. I don't read Japanese, so I don't know. Um, but he also drew, like, you know, there's there's Mog the Moogle, like the little white teddy bear dude on the mm -hmm. cover. And he drew yeah. little, like, sparkly lines around the Moogle's head bobble. Mm. And I was, I like to think I can keep my cool a lot of the time. I did not keep my cool. How can you? Oh, like, this this guy's art, I spent so long on a 28.8 modem waiting for it to download line by line by line to save onto my 3 gig hard drive in like 95 yeah oh, it was it was amazing and he was a very nice guy didn't speak a word of english that's, so uh but, but you know body language says a lot hey you know like that's all i ask if 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 you can't if you can't you know be nice to me in english uh just make nice gestures and draw a nice picture for me yeah exactly all good. it was amazing all good oh, so good <clears throat> uh 94 i think is when the super nintendo like really kind of came into its own and uh, it, it released like the super effects chip uh, mode seven, I think was doing some like really amazingly new and powerful things uh, with game mechanics. And you had games uh, that had kind of this like faux uh, polygonal 3d uh, games like Donkey Kong country. Mm -hmm. That game still and, looks incredible. Uh, it really does. And again, I mean, if we want to talk about soundtracks, the pre vaporwave vaporwave soundtrack of the water levels of Donkey Kong Country to this day are like what people put on to like uh, read and study to mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, I, I remember owning Killer Instinct and thinking to myself, I beat this game up and down. I'm going to go to the local arcade and I'm going to wipe the floor with every every player there. And uh, no, that's not what happened at all. <laughs> Matt got his little butt kicked and uh, was introduced to uh, to hubris. So the arcade scene was so competitive back in the mid nineties. It was, it very much was. You had that one guy who put in one quarter in the day and then just beat everybody. And his entire day cost 25, 50 cents, whatever they costed then. And uh, yeah, the, 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 I mean, there was just, there was, there was no breaking into it because it was so established and the people playing were so good. Um, 
I don't remember if Tekken was a game in 1994, 95. I believe it was released in 95. Uh, but yeah, you had these you had these games that were inspired by Street Fighter that people just flooded to. And it was just such a cool scene. And, you know, being able to like learn about these games was just it was just so much fun. I, I really enjoyed the arcade scene in the 90s. It was it was great. Yeah, for me, it was um, Stardust Skating Rink in Sarasota, Florida. Did you have like a specific arcade that you went to? Uh, I had moon dogs, um, arcade. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a comic book store and arcade and it was incredible. It was everything I could have asked for. It's actually where I bought all of my, uh, X-Men cards from that we talked about in a previous episode. Oh yeah. Way back in the day. Oh man, Mm -hmm. that would have been heaven. That sounds, that sounds amazing. I'm so glad you had a chance to like spend time there. I am too. I'm, I'm realizing just how, like, like what, what a relic that space was at that time a place that could do a lot of things at the same time and then be an arcade and then not necessarily worry about being hyper profitable but instead just packing it with all of the things the owner loved and i just don't think you get that much anymore with you know uh just how much like property prices are and how uh how much you're pressured to be like a hyper profitable company like right out of the gates um it just kind of breaks my heart that like a model like that can't necessarily work as it used to. Completely agree. Yeah. I mean, we used to have some awesome things like uh, ground control here in Portland is an amazing barcade, sure. but like, yeah, absolutely. so it, it seems like it's got to be so challenging and there's so much just luck involved as well to make a place like that happen. Yeah. And ground control has the legacy as well. They, uh, they, uh, they started their business, uh, Oh God, back in 99 or 2000. So, I mean, I was still technically in that era that you could do something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. As I recall, didn't we meet in person for the first time at ground control? I think it was like a show you were uh, DJing. Yeah, quite possibly. Was it uh, maybe one of my chiptune shows? I think it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've, Cause I've been to was a couple of those. I think it was, uh, yep. It, An early Micropalooza. It was the maybe? first one that I'd ever uh, gone to. Yeah. That's amazing. Ah, yeah. Low these many moons ago. Indeed. Yeah. It, just, oh, it feels like so long ago. What is time? Really? What even is time? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so 94 uh, was an amazing year for the Super Nintendo. I played a lot of Super Punch-Out personally it's as a, a kid. Game. I played a lot of Illusion of Gaia, a game that we have in Illusion common. of Gaia. Yeah, that was made by the same people that did ActRaiser. Uh, I'd played a lot mm-hmm. of Soul Blazer, the game they made in between, where like it was a, a top-down, uh, third-person perspective, and you would like go into these dungeons and fight monsters. And when you beat certain monsters, it would like resurrect part of a town. So when you went to a new region, it would just be a big empty space. And then you would resurrect like a person in their house or a tulip that you could talk to because you could talk to whatever. And the vine it was near, which would let you get to a new place. It was great. And then Illusion of Guy was the same kind of thing, but you were this kid who was exploring all of these real world earth, like famous ruins, like Angkor Wat and the Nazca lines Mm -hmm. and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you eventually got to, uh, I don't know, maybe a third of the way through the game. You got to turn into this like ancient warrior, Mm -hmm. uh, via this like, uh, statue that you would go visit in this like, you know, spectral plane. And all of a sudden you got to play out this like amazing, like, power fantasy of like turning into the superhero and all of a sudden these monsters that gave you so much trouble when you were just a kid with a stick 
now you're just this like, you know, long haired superhero with a sword and you just started cutting down these enemies just like, well, I guess the game is easy now, which it wasn't. It got much harder uh, down the road. Uh, and then at the very end of the game, you turned into this like spirit of pure energy and it just seemed to it, it, it kept upping the ante and it was so cool. I didn't understand what the story was, but it was just so cool. I feel like the story in all of Quintet slash Enix's games are it's a little ambiguous. But like I do I do mm-hmm. appreciate that they kept it personal. Like you were still mm-hmm, yeah, you were still this kid Will and you still had your group of friends who you were traveling with yeah. and like things would happen to them and one of them turned into a giant psychic fish for some reason and that was really sad. And like I, I just love the weird of it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 another game that did that uh was a game that I didn't play again until much later, but like Earthbound. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of did that same thing where you're just a kid in this big weird world with your friends and enormously strange things happen and you just gotta you gotta deal with them and i don't know kind of a parable of being a kid pretty much yeah that's the thing like it 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 channels childhood okay to skip like way into the future way past when we're even going to talk about double finds game costume quest yeah, because yes. like, you know, you're these Absolutely. You're kids on Halloween, but it feels like when we were kids on Halloween, when it's like, oh, no, there's genuinely spooky, spooky stuff going on and the adults don't get mm-hmm. it, but but we get it. And I love that games can just make that real, you know, they can be like, yeah. oh, mm-hmm. no, but what if that actually was the case? What if that was actually how things worked the way they feel to you? What if that was the world? Yeah, like you 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 had this amazing ability to exaggerate the world around you and the medium of video games was especially effective in being able to realize those exaggerations for you and make them come to life and then allow you to react to those uh to those situations and like let me tell you being a a a, a preteen in the Super Nintendo age was just perfect. Those games were perfectly constructed for me and you know, the story of a kid and his group of friends going on this grand adventure just kind of like fit so perfectly into like what I would be doing on an adventure like that. It, you know, like we we talk about the emotional, like, you know, being able to emotionally tap into these games. And, you know, it was very much a time and place kind of thing, but it it just hits so hard. It did so well at that. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure that every generation has its equivalent of that, but I'm so glad that that was, sure. was ours, you know, like I would not have, yeah. I would not have missed that. And I think so much of, I, I only speaking for myself, like so much of who I've developed into as a person in terms of the way I see the world, the way I interact with the world was stuff I learned from super Nintendo games. Like that sounds weird, but kind of nonetheless. Hey mom, dad, are you hearing this? Like, they did an okay job for us. Okay. <laughs> Video games didn't rot our mind. They actually made us into uh, uh, like observant, creative people in the future. So we'll just let that, we'll just let that be. Exactly. So I, I guess that means we get to be, we get to be smug. Cause when we were kids, we, we said that was the case was totally mm-hmm. the case. Yeah, absolutely. Turns out we were right. Mom and dad. <laughs> only thing though, that was the only thing we got right. Everything else totally wrong, <laughs> but at least there's that. There's that. We'll hang our hat on that. Uh, let's move on to 1995 because 95 uh, for me was the introduction of a lot of very strange technologies. Uh, one of which was the CD-ROM and not only the CD-ROM, but the demo CD that came with magazines mm-hmm. for PC games. And one of the games I found uh, wasn't a good game, but it was a game that I played through multiple times and 
to this day can remember weird lines of dialogue from it's a game called bioforge and i highly recommend just checking out the game you are a, a soldier who was kidnapped and forcibly turned into a cyborg and the whole game is about finding out who did this to you and you're angry and you're vengeful and you find the person who did it to you like really early on in the game and it's very anticlimactic and then it's just a it's this empty search of what to do with this new like just husk of a body that you have uh it was a weird game. It sounds kind of like a it, metaphor for adolescence in some ways. Oh my God. Yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe that's why like, you know, it was, it was, it was a terrible game to control. Like you, you did not have very good control of the character, which, oh my God, is that, is that a, is that about adolescence I, I too? I don't know. <laughs> and, and if it is, was that even remotely deliberate or are we just now thinking about it now? Is Bioforge secretly the most brilliant game of the nineties? I feel like that's like the know. back of the episode blurb for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can't believe we're somehow already at an hour. So let's, let's definitely keep going, but I, I, I guess so that we don't completely destroy the listener's stamina. Let's just, let's talk about sort of our highlights from the latter half of, of the nineties. Totally. Yeah. So, okay. So like this actually gets easier for me because I stopped playing video games uh, pretty soon after this and start playing in punk rock bands. So my list of games gets a little better. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I played, uh, on, uh, this, uh, program called Dwango. It was a acronym for uh, dial up wide area network game operation. And I got to play online with other people. Uh, if I wanted to play with someone in Houston, Texas, I would have to dial into their server and incur the long distance fees. Uh, but it was just such an amazing experience. It was the first online platform for gaming. And I played a lot of doom Two, a lot of Warcraft two, a lot of blood, um, just all the really cool competitive games that came out uh, at around that era. Um, I played a lot of doom clones like Hexen and heretic. Uh, and then I got my, um, I got my PlayStation and I played, uh, jumping flash and Tekken and all of those games. I got introduced to adventure games a little later than I probably should have. I played space quest and King's quest and full throttle. Uh, speaking of uh, legacy of double fine full, Th- full throttle was made by uh, LucasArts, which, um, uh, the CEO and owner of, uh, and founder of double fine, um, Tim Schaefer, Tim Schaefer. Thank you. Uh, used to work for and he was he was he was a a, a big uh, uh he was he was a writer for all of those games so yeah no i I, had, I did my share of um adventure games as well like as the super nintendo era was finishing i i definitely checked out some of the later games like chrono trigger and super mario rpg i still think are two of the finest games mm-hmm. ever made um yeah both absolutely hold up my fiance and i did super mario rpg like when we when the super nintendo classic first came out just as nice. much fun today and my super nintendo classic now has chrono trigger because of technology that you're probably not supposed to use but i'm excited to go through that with her as well but yeah those adventure games like um quest for glory was the one that i really got into Mm. um i loved how in that series each game was based on a different type of mythology like there was germanic mythology there was sort of eastern european creepy mythology there was greek mythology it was just so cool to jump around with the same character but also did you ever play the gabriel knight series 
I played the first Gabriel Knight and gave up really quick because those were just way too hard for a young Matt. Yeah, yeah. Some of the puzzles were completely illogical, but I got really into the second one. So in Gabriel Knight, um, if listeners aren't familiar, you play this detective uh, voiced usually by Tim Curry. But in the second one, it was all full motion video. Like it was all motion captured and and uh, live action acted. That one was in Germany, and it was about werewolves, and I learned about Ludwig the Mad, and I learned about um, Wagner, and how that was all connected. That's the only time I've ever accidentally stayed up all night, was playing through that game, trying to figure out the werewolfy classical music mysteries of Germany. I was so, so engrossed. Uh, thankfully, when I played it, the internet had just barely started being a thing. So if you were really, really, really lucky, you could go on to whatever search en- engines existed at that point and maybe find the answer for a puzzle you were stuck on. I think Alta Vista was the one I used back uh, then. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one because the school across the street from my school was called Alta Vista. And so it was always really weird using oh. the website. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, but yeah, so I, I unfortunately kind of, uh, dipped out of the super Nintendo at about this time and, uh, was almost entirely PC with the occasional diversion to the PlayStation, but, uh, PC was definitely like my bread and butter. Uh, moving on to 1996, I had games like quake Duke Nukem 3d, uh, Diablo, mm-hmm wing commander descent. All of a sudden the PC was just releasing these stellar, just amazingly like uh, uh, detailed games that were just loads of fun to play. A lot of action, uh, a lot of like, um, like kind of like bombastic games, you know, games like Duke, Duke Nukem 3d uh, don't age as well because of the content of the game. But back then it was just cool. Yeah, yeah. I I only ever really like heard about those shooters from my friends. I never really played them. I didn't have a computer that was powerful enough. And I think part of me, I just sort of stereotyped those games as being for people that were not me. Oh, uh, sure. Being for, you know, people who were sort of more more aggressive than I was. I think that was at a period in my life when I was kind of backing hard away from a lot of the traditional signifiers of young masculinity. Because I was like, well, if I can't Mm. play this, if I can't win this game, then I don't even want to fucking play. And so I just identified yeah. as, you know, somebody who did not like those things. And in retrospect, I totally missed out. I, I mean, you missed out, but maybe in the long run, w- those were the correct decisions. I still have a lot of like uh, untraining to do myself as far as like my uh, masculine tendencies go. But uh, uh, and I'm, I'm certain these games didn't help very much. But at the time, there was just so much fun. It was just it was just such a great experience. But uh uh, I, w- I was I was telling Miles earlier about a game called Dusk that uh, is so similar to Quake in the look and the feel and the flow and just the weirdness of it. Uh, so, I mean, these experiences are still uh, out there for you to uh, to have if you want to revisit them in you know small doses. Oh, oh, for a world with more time. I mean, we kind of got a world with more time <laughs> in that we're all quarantining now, but. Uh, That's true. I still would need more, more time if it weren't for this pesky day job. As much as the commute is shorter these days, down to my living room, like still eight hours more a day would be nice for checking out things like dusk. Yeah, I mean, you and me both have a second job in this podcast, so there's know, also talk about eating. Up there's time. also that I kind of forget sometimes that that is actually like that it is a second job. I'm like, no, that's just a thing I do. That's just a part of life. But oh no, that that's totally a second job. You're right. It is totally a second job. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. And then in 1996, uh, Matt started listening to techno and playing this cool futuristic racing game called wipeout, which, 
Uh, if you've never like seen footage of Wipeout to like the techno soundtrack that came with it, I highly recommend it because uh, if you want to talk about things that are just like pure distilled mid nineties, it's kind of that. Do you remember an arcade game called Stun Runner? Does that ring a bell? It doesn't. What was Stun, Stun Runner? Runner was at Stardust Skating Rink, the aforementioned, and. It was one of those arcade games where, like, the thing you were doing was physically part of the game. So in this case, you were on this futuristic motorcycle going through wipeout Mm -hmm. slash F-Zero-like environments. Mm -hmm. And the controller was actually that. You would sit on it and, like, you would lean over it and hold the handlebars. And it would turn in one level into, like, a flying version of the motorcycle. You go underwater, it would turn into a submersible. And the thing would move as you steered. And it cost like a dollar, which was unheard of back in the, I think, early yeah. 90s at this point. But it was just, it was the dream. And games like F-Zero and Wipeout after that forever reminded me of Stun Runner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, eh, that's probably why I don't remember it too much. I stayed away from the more expensive arcade games. Just couldn't afford Fair. it. Yeah, I think I only ever played it like once. I would just watch other people playing it mostly. Sure. Aww. Yeah, definitely. Um was there anything else you wanted to touch on in 1996 before we uh, move on to 1997? I mean, 96, I guess the first game I really played in, I, I guess that was technically Super Mario RPG, but um, the first Resident Evil, mm-hmm. I believe, came out in 96. Oh, yeah. And that was when I started getting really into survival horror. I would later play Silent Hill in the later 90s, uh, 99, I think. But that first Resident Evil, there was nothing like it. By today's standards, it's horrifyingly campy and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like The voice acting is just yeah. atrocious which I kind of love, but at the time it was so immersive and I was terrified. Like my friends and I would just sit around like huddled in front of the tiny CRT TV, just waiting for the inevitable decapitation and bloody you are dead to go across the screen. And like having a game with recorded audio and with actual dialogue just added so, so much to that. It was it was a brand new era of gaming that games like that ushered in. Um, but man, let me tell you, the hallway with the dogs yep, yep. that you, uh, you that made me put down that game for a good long time. I picked it back up uh, a little later on because Matt was not wealthy enough to have every game I could want. So I had to play through Resident Evil uh, and it was just such just an amazing experience to play through that game. Just so much, so much fear, but also like once you got a handle of the controls and the layout of the house and, you know, you started feeling more empowered, you know, you actually had ammo at one time uh, in the game, which felt pretty good. (laughs) And I think that's so much of, uh, of especially the resident evil series, not all horror games, but definitely that one is just being Mm -hmm. thrown into insurmountable odds, not just in terms of your character's resources, but in terms of like you emotionally as a player and psychologically. And so that feeling of, no, I'm going to get through this, damn it, is incredibly empowering. Yeah. Yeah, definitely is. Um, 97 for me was, I think, uh, that was the first time I played in a punk rock band. So there's not a lot of gaming that happened in 1997, unfortunately, (laughs) but uh, there was Gran Turismo for the PlayStation, which uh, I completely fell into. I unlocked the the secret black car. I unlocked every other car, every uh, song on the soundtrack I unlocked. It was probably the first game that I like maybe 100 Mm percented. And then, of course, there were games like Fallout, which 
uh, I think started this love affair with a more American style role playing game. That makes sense. It was one of the best uh, early ones. Yeah, it, it, it took everything that I loved about like Final Fantasy as far as like storytelling and dialogue and narrative and character building, and it just added so much more to it. It added, you know, uh, inventory management like I've never seen before, and and crafting and mystery and uh, Fallout and Fallout Two. Just uh, they hold such a special place in my gaming history that. Uh, you know, it was it was it was a little bit heartbreaking to see Fallout Four and Fallout Seventy Six be such utter failures. Only ones I've ever really played. I'm told some of the mid ones are are great, but Fallout One and Two I loved a lot. I highly recommend uh, New Vegas. It was actually made by the same team at Black Isle that made uh, One okay. and Two, so it has a lot of that like that 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 feel, that dialogue, that storytelling. Uh, it's really 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 good. Okay, uh, I. I will check that out. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cheap on Steam, too. 1997 so. for me was mainly about one game, as it was for a lot of other people, and that was Final Fantasy VII, a game I was immensely, immensely conflicted about at the time because my beloved Squaresoft had abandoned Nintendo. I was going to get a Nintendo 64, mm-hmm. and I could either choose that or or I could follow Final Fantasy. And so I had to search my soul and decide which was more important. Like, I'd played on the PlayStation. I'd played Resident Evil, like we were just talking about, at a friend's house. Mm -hmm. But was I going to get one? Was I going to get one for this massive, massive game? And I did. And I was an elitist shit about Final Fantasy VII because it was the first game that everybody got into, and Final Fantasy was no longer just, like, my thing that only I and my friends knew about. That was also where I discovered Mm -hmm. slash fiction on the early days of the internet and Mm. was... Mm-hmm. really confused and creeped out uh, in, in retrospect like no man people like to transform properties make them yours absolutely but at the time i was not the most enlightened soul because i feel like few of us were in the in the mid 90s but it's, it's a lot to yeah ask. but uh, in retrospect that game was fascinating i just played the remake recently freaking loved it the whole the original game i have a lot of fond feelings toward um it was it was defining of the era for me what about you i know you mentioned you sort of had iffy feelings about it back in the day when we were talking earlier so i had i had kind of a similar build-up to final fantasy you know being so in love with final fantasy 2 and 3 and then what (laughs) 7 what uh because none of us knew about the games being released in japan at the time uh but i think there were a lot of things kind of working against it for me um one was the dialogue seemed cheaper it it didn't seem as well written to me like i wasn't actually falling in love with any of these characters i didn't particularly like cloud as a protagonist i thought he was kind of a jerk and uh you know didn't have the same kind of like tragic yearning backstory that like uh, cecil did in final fantasy 2 or that tara slash tina did in final fantasy 3 so that was kind of a big thing for me. Uh, second off, the, uh, the the battle system was, it was different, mm-hmm. you know, and when you're young, changes are sometimes very scary, but it was just, it, it, it just felt like, it just didn't feel like what I thought a Final Fantasy game should be. And all of a sudden I was playing this different game entirely that uh, I didn't recognize at all. And it was... 
it was just generally very dis- like disappointing. I didn't make it past the first disc. I kind of packed it away and just never really picked it up again. Um, and for years after that, just I always kind of thought like, you know, you know, maybe I should have finished it to like, you know, really kind of complete my. But no, I gave it a good college try. I think, you know, disc one is a is a pretty good, you know, sample of like what the game is in its entirety. Uh, but, you know, the story was a bit of a mess. I have a lot of opinions about Final Fantasy seven, but um, not a lot of them. That's are fair. Good. That's fair. And honestly, disc one, I think, is the best disc. So if that didn't grab you, I don't think the rest would have. The remake, mm-hmm. I was extremely impressed with. What was that, last year, this year? Um, for me, it took it took the good parts of FF7 and expanded the hell out of them. Like, setting the entire mm-hmm. game just in Midgard, just in the first area of the original, that was my yeah. favorite part of the game. And the writing is just stellar. Yeah. So for me, it really, really worked. Other people, like, I can understand if it's not their jam, but I dug it. One of the games I see you have on here is Wild Arms. Now, I've never played Wild Arms. However, the opening track to Wild Arms is probably one of the best video game songs ever. Oh, it ever totally written. is. Yeah, just that whistling Sergio Leone, what, Leone was it? Uh, homage. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. Wild Arms. Mm-hmm. It's a Western RPG. And I don't just mean like it was made in the West. It was made in Japan. I mean like Wild West cowboy RPG. Like you have cowboys and mm-hmm. six shooters and katanas and magic and elementals and gods and aliens. And it's honestly a series where the premise is better than the games. Um, sure. But the premise is just so good. The aesthetics of it are just so good. Like Wild Arms 3 opens with all of the different characters meeting on a dark and stormy night in the middle of a train robbery. Like, when do you see something like that? That's one of the things I love about games is when they take a, a genre of gameplay and a genre of story mm-hmm. that shouldn't match up, that don't normally match up, and just cram them together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but really the only example of the American version of the music being better than the Japanese version of the music, because the Japanese version just had someone singing over it, and uh, the U.S. version just put whistling over it. Bam. Instant I never knew song. that. I never heard the Japanese version. Now I'm curious. Yeah, check it out. You know, then you'll, it'll just uh, embolden your opinion that uh, how great the uh, Wild Arms uh, It's really is. good. Yeah, listeners, uh, if you have a chance, just look up Wild Arms 1 opening on YouTube or something. Like, the animation's old school, but the uh, the music is perfect. Yeah. Sure <laughs> yep. Uh, so, what about 1998? Like, I know you were gaming less still. Yeah, I was one of the like probably the biggest gaming thing that I did was on my Game Boy Color. So me and my friends at lunch every day would have Tetris DX tournaments where we we would link cables from across the table and we would all play Tetris DS uh, DX every day. I got really, really good at it. And, uh, and then Pokemon, uh, I, I, my personal flavor of Pokemon was blue. Uh, but then I had friends who had a uh, yellow and red and we would trade Pokemon. We battle our Pokemon. And, uh, that was most of the gaming that I did, uh, in early high school in, uh, in, in 1998. But then I also played the PC games, Baldur's Gate, uh, Starcraft with the Brood War expansion. Uh, of course I played Fallout 2, Thief. And then um, on the PlayStation, I noticed that you and I have a game in common. We both played Parasite. Yeah, no, that was such a strong year for Squaresoft RPGs. It was weird because Mm -hmm. it was like it was set in the modern day. Like it was a modern day kind of science fiction horror thriller almost. Yeah. And and, and it like the 
the cast of characters was just so unique and it's like uh it, it had a very definite span of time which was really interesting it was very grounded in like what you could call like a faux reality exactly yeah and, and i never played a game like that I've, I've always wanted because the game is set uh over the course of a one-week period surrounding christmas and i've always wanted mm-hmm. to play that like on those days in real life so you know day one you play on what day one would be on the calendar, the day that takes place on Christmas, you play on Christmas. Never actually gotten around mm-hmm. to that since 1998, but maybe this will be the year. That would that would actually be a lot of fun. I mean, it's not like you can do much else on Christmas, so you might as well play Options a video game. Options are limited this year, it's true. Um, <laughs> the other 1998 RPG that I fell in love with was also by Squaresoft. It was a game called Xenogears. And it is mm-hmm. the most pretentious, incomprehensible, wonderful, perfect game. Like, I remember... Um, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminds me of Evangelion in that there are all these people sitting around talking about shit that you, the viewer, have no idea about, and they're not explaining it to you. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it feels like mystery for the sake of mystery, but I fell in love with it. Like, it takes place over thousands of years. You kill God at the end. It's all about reincarnation and Freudian psychology and giant kung fu robots. I've named two of the cars I've owned after two of those giant kung fu robots, in fact. <laughs> It is a mess. It doesn't hold up. I love it so goddamn much. I can't even describe. It's funny because like, I I feel like you could be describing a number of Squaresoft games with a lot of those different elements. There is a lot of attacking and dethroning God. Yeah, I was about to say like killing God. It's just another Squaresoft game. (laughs) For me, it was Tuesday. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. And, and, uh, I played some of that again, the pretentiousness, the scale of it just uh, kind of escaped me a little bit. I had the same problem with Chrono Cross at around that same time. I can see that. Yeah. Chrono Cross, I think also its reach was greater than its grasp. Like there's still a lot of great things yeah. about it. Um, really cool character design, sure. phenomenal soundtrack, just freaking phenomenal. But yeah, as a game, it you could see what they were going for. And I don't think anyone could have accomplished that at that time. I'm just going to blame it on Doom and Quake. I was poisoned by high speed, you know, action. And then all of a sudden this like very paced, very deep character driven storytelling just didn't have a place in my brain anymore. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. I was watching South Park at the time. You have to cut me some slack. (laughs) It does have an effect on people. It's true. Does absolutely, uh, and then in 1999, uh, Matt's transition from uh, nerdy gamer kid to filthy punk rocker was complete. I was in my band Triple Empty, we were actually playing shows at local churches and uh, uh, local um, veterans halls, which was a lot of fun. Uh, but that didn't stop me from playing Heroes of Might and Magic 3 for hours and hours and hours on end hot seat with like three or four of my friends. Now this isn't a very well-known game. It is on goodoldgames.com. If you go to gog.com, they do have it for relatively inexpensive. If you just want a cool hot seat multiplayer game that like people can like eat and drink and hang out and, 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 and well, I guess your family at this point, I, you know, but, uh, it's a great game. It's super fun. I highly recommend people check something like that out. But yeah, Heroes of Might and Magic 3 was definitely my game of 99. That's a good choice. Now, I remember playing that with some friends as well. I was terrible at it, but it was really fun. Yeah, I was too. <laughs> 
1999. Um, I, I feel like Jay would would just stop podcasting with me if I didn't mention the remakes of the Lunar series of RPGs from the Sega CD. They came out for the PlayStation. They were totally remade. An incredible localization, if not very loyal to the original di- Japanese dialogue by a company called Working Designs, and just so goddamn much heart. So much heart. Also one of the best villains of all time in the first Lunar game, Ga- Magic Emperor Galleon. He's he's an emperor, but he's magic, and his name's Galleon. I mean, it 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 works, you know, for for that style of game for sure. Uh, the only thing I remember about that game, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm mistaken in this, didn't one of the actors who voiced one of the characters have a bad lisp? Uh, I don't remember that part. Okay. I mean- I might be thinking of a different game, but like there was this cute little dragon thing that followed you around that maybe is the one you're thinking about because his voice was pretty weird. So it could have been that one. The main thing I remember about the voice acting is at one point Galleon dies um, and he has this like dramatic long death scene where he's joking on and bleeding out and giving you the big speech. And apparently John Truitt, the voice actor, uh, Jay and I found like Mm -hmm. an interview with him. He chugged a gallon of milk before doing that speech just so he could be phlegmy enough for it to come through in the voice acting recording. Oh man. You know what? Points, points for dedication. That's impressive. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, But then, yeah, like after that into the two thousands, my gaming career mostly stopped. I, I played a lot of competitive counter-strike, but uh, yeah, past the, past the nineties, my gaming didn't really uh, get too serious until about 2006 when I bought my Wii, I bought my uh, uh, Xbox 360 and got right back into gaming. So college is really just kind of put it on hold. For oh me. man, no, for me, that was still a big, big part of what I did. Both single play, single, single player games myself and, uh, you know, Smash Brothers and stuff with friends, Fantasy Star Online with a dial-up modem. Like mm-hmm. there was so much, but with that, I could, I could fill another episode and I don't think anybody needs to listen to that. Um, sure, but sure. yeah, no, aside from that, the, the capstone of that decade for me was like I mentioned earlier, the first Silent Hill. Silent Hill is still probably my favorite video game series. That level of just surreal psychological dread just gets right into my very marrow. I I love it a great, great deal. Uh, I already have Silent Hill tattoo plans that I'm going to do at some point after quarantine. It's going to be great. Um, but yeah, yeah, if uh, if you like having your head messed with and you like horror, I can't recommend Silent Hill highly enough, especially Silent Hill 2, which was not the 90s, but still. Yeah, no, that was that was def- definitely my favorite Silent Hill. I, I'm I'm a I'm a pretty heavy Silent Hill 3 apologist, but oh, uh, as far as yeah, as far as Silent Hill 1, um, I would argue the the graphics and the controls don't really hold up, but the tone of the game definitely does. Oh yeah, that that introductory bit as the world transforms into Dark mm-hmm. Silent Hill for the first time is just that is what the concept of a nightmare feels like, illustrated perfectly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Just, just, the, just the world that you thought you recognized twisting and mangling and decaying away into this terrifying hellscape. Uh, Silent Hill, uh, no one did it better than Silent oh, Hill. So good. So good. Rumor has it. They may be announcing a new one for the PS5 in like a week. I'll believe it when I see it. Konami has not made good decisions for many, many years, but you never know. Maybe, maybe the series will continue. I just want PT back. That's PT all I want. So I mean, it, it was so impossible to actually figure out what the hell you were supposed to do to finish it. But until that point, it was so True. good. It was I so know. scary. God, it was just 
Oh, first time in a long time I got like genuinely terrified. Oh yeah, no, I was like Anna and I were trying to hide behind each other as we were playing through it. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's the '90s. That's our our video game education of of the '90s. Unless you had anything else you wanted to talk about before we we close out, Miles. I have another hour worth of stuff I want to talk about. The 1990s for me was just such a formative decade, uh, just as far as like games and music and comic books. And I just, I, I absorbed every possible piece of media I could, and I absorbed it to its last <laughs> drop. And, uh, you know, with the gift that Blockbuster gave to me of being able to rent games, try them out and return them, I must have had hundreds upon hundreds of individual game experiences that affected me in very different uh, and, you know, good to bad ways. Um, but uh, but I'm just really happy I got to talk about some of my favorite uh, standouts from the 90s. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really cool just learning so much from somebody with your your vast perspective on that. And also just getting a chance to talk with you on the air. I'm super excited. We've finally gotten a chance to do this for like an entire episode, even if it's like not our standard kind of episode. In fact, maybe especially since it's not our standard kind of episode. Yeah, I mean, I was I was honored when you thought of me when you were just like, hey, we're talking about 90s video games. Maybe Matt has some input on this. And boy, howdy. Do <laughs> in, I fact, ever. in fact, no, when I mentioned this to Jay that like I was thinking about talking to Matt, Jay was like, yes, you should absolutely do that. Matt's the perfect person to talk to about this. <laughs> There's two things I can do. It's uh, make podcasts sound OK and talk about video games from the 90s. Outside of that, I'm mostly <laughs> those are two very important <laughs> skills that I personally value greatly. So thank you. <laughs> In 2020, yeah, it's all that. <laughs> uh, well, listeners, if you've made it this far, thank you so much for for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this. Maybe remembered some things if you're a gamer. Maybe you have a list of things to try if you're not. Or maybe you just like the way our voices sound and you weren't paying attention to the details. All of those are totally fine. Yeah. Miles, uh, I, I, I humbly request if I can uh, let the audience know where they can find me online. I would love for you to do so. Okay, cool. Uh, so I am a Twitch streamer in my part time as well. Uh, when I'm not editing podcasts or working a day job, uh, I have a DJ stream I do every Saturday at twitch.tv slash DJ Mechlo, M-E-C-H-L-O. Uh, I have a lefty politics stream. If you're into lefty politics and want to talk about that, that's twitch.tv slash Matthew Sean, S-E-A-N-N. And uh, I got the moon talk thing that gets mentioned in every episode, which I definitely appreciate. We appreciate the music you did. Uh, yeah, that. Yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, uh, I'm Mecklo on most every other um, platform. So if you want to reach out and say, hey, I am uh, more than happy to, to chat. Hell yeah. Well, Matt, thank you again so much for uh, being in the episode. This was a blast. I had a great time. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And listeners, we will see you again soon with some X-Men. We hope you're all doing well. Stay safe out there. Take care. We love you all. Dun, dun.